Welcome to Foss and Crafts, a podcast about free software, free culture, and making things together. With my co-host Morgan and my co-host Chris. What are we talking about this time? Today we are actually going to be talking about a philosophical framework that Chris has been thinking about in stages for just about ever. Not just about ever. I didn't really have an interest in ethics until I was in college, at least. Well, we've kind of had this history of having long, rambling, philosophical conversations with our friends that goes all the way back to college. So we had a very stereotypical liberal arts college trope where we would all sit on the quad and there was a guy named Frankie who would play bongos and we would have (laughs) these long deep conversation did did that happen more than once it definitely happened more than once frankie brought those bongos everywhere really wow okay um well yeah but i mean well the other thing was is that i was an interdisciplinary humanities major and my advisor was taught ethics of philosophy yeah and chris's interdisciplinary humanities degree was largely philosophy based yeah that and just a big mishmash of other things but uh but yeah yeah that's true well i mean i don't downplay it you had to have a discipline that was the guiding principle of your interdisciplinary humanities degree that was one of the requirements of your degree and for you that was philosophy right okay yes that's true and um, also at that time i was getting very interested in the ethics of free software Mm -hmm. right and uh the various philosophical documents you could find on gnu.org and stuff like that and thinking a lot about them Mm -hmm. in relation to the stuff i was studying in school basically Um, and at that point i didn't really consider myself into philosophy at all i would kind of sit there and nod as chris had these conversations but as we were preparing for this episode i kind of realized oh wait i'm less than a year away from being a doctor of philosophy so I guess I can't really say that anymore. Also, you engage in these conversations a lot these days, so... So, with that background in mind of Chris's history with philosophy and ethics, uh, could you give us a short definition of what the ethics of agency is? Okay, yes. And I also want to give a disclaimer that I don't consider myself a professional philosopher. I just have some educational background but it is something i've been thinking about and care a lot about but anyway here we go ethics of agency uh the general short version of it is maximizing agency for you for me for everyone and minimizing subjection and we weigh subjection more heavily than we weigh agency Uh, And for a good reason. So first of all, let's establish why we care about agency at all, right? So if we're kind of trying to figure out what kind of base ethical system we want to create, there's all sorts of different approaches you can take. You can take, you know, a utilitarian approach. You can take a Kantian approach. You can take blah, 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 like ethics of care, all sorts of things. Here, what I think is really interesting is, well, Assuming we're not doing something prescriptive, assuming that we want to boil it down to a real core in the same way that like 
programming languages that are based off of a core like the lambda calculus tend to be more interesting programming languages then we we really want to figure out what we really really value and for me when i think about the kind of work i've done and what i value and what i think actually most people value it's it is agency and the exciting like the most exciting things in this universe are you know not just dust and uh various you know particles just moving around the universe for no reason whatsoever it's when we get this emergent behavior of these really interesting systems so the most interesting probably being sapient beings like you and me right so we're both humans obviously we have a lot large bias towards ourselves um i do think our ethics also extend to animals mm-hmm. um who are many of which are sentient but not sapient. Yeah. Um, One of whom is sitting on the floor right now looking at us angrily because Chris kicked her out of her spot on the couch. Yes. So, well, let's let's reframe that a little bit, right? So do we consider um, animals to be more valuable than humans? Uh, like non-human animals. Obviously, humans are animals. And I'd say no. Um, I think the agency potential of human beings is much larger given our capacity to think and so on uh, in in greater forms than most animals can. But your uh, right to sit on this couch cushion is greater because you have well, the need to make a podcast episode. <laughs> I, I didn't want to do it like that. I just meant, I, I mean, I think she's more upset because we haven't fed her yet. But well, I, yeah. uh, I think that uh, uh, I, I don't want to pit me versus our cat <laughs> here. Let's put it this way. Um, so, so this is actually borrowing something from Peter Singer, who's a utilitarian, who did influence a lot of my thinking. Should we give a dog the right to vote? No, because a dog can't do anything useful with the right to vote. But should we protect a dog from being kicked, right? Well, yes, a dog can feel pain and doesn't want to be kicked. So we shouldn't, no, we shouldn't be kicking dogs, right? And that actually extends for other animals that aren't just our pets, right? We might not weigh them as heavily as humans, though, right? Because the because humans, I, and I I know I'm putting it in almost clinical terms, are really interesting agents in air quotes, but um, but have a capacity for agency that's much larger, and also I think a capacity to be subjected that's much larger. That's a general idea, um, and what I want to say I might argue with the capacity to be subjected. There are a lot of animals that are subjected solely for human purposes. Yeah, I'm agreeing that they they huh. are subjected. Um, what I'm saying is is that I also think that there's a certain amount of value in, you know, not very intelligent, you know, bugs and also like, you know, single-celled organisms to some very, very, very small amount of degree, but they're not very interesting agents. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same capacity to develop experiences and so on. The humans do. What I'm saying is really is that you can't also with withhold a degree from a cat. But you can, you know, hurt a cat, you can torture a cow, you can do things like that. So yes, subjection is clearly something we need to hold within consideration there. Um so anyway, I think that I what I want to emphasize is I'm not saying that this is a universal philosophical lens to uh apply to everything. I think that it's one lens of many it's useful to have multiple philosophical lenses and switch them out to look at things but i think this is a particularly powerful philosophical lens especially when we want to evaluate a lot of the ethical issues especially the kind that we talk about on this show
Yeah. So let's look at the zoom and focus capabilities of this powerful philosophical lens. How do we define the scope of this so that people don't just kind of get caught in their little microcosms and think about agency only as it pertains to their lives? Right. So, well, let's start out by zooming all the way into the individual, right? So we can think about you and me as individuals, our cat as an individual, the person across the street as an individual, a person in Bangladesh as an individual, right? All of these as individuals and really focus in on them. And that's actually really useful because that, that allows us to really think with a sense of story and also consider the needs of some individual agent. And there's no point of agency if we aren't looking at the ability and requirement for that agent to really express itself on an individual level, right? We've lost it if we've lost that. But it can be possible when thinking about agency and since we're stuck in our own minds and the amount of agency I think the most about uh, is quite possibly going to be the amount that I can see and experience, which could be myself and it could also be the way that the people around me I see being as subjected are. And I could really focus on the individual and that could be mean that I lose track and I end up just having a very selfish, quote unquote, ethic, which I wouldn't think would be an ethical framework at all. Right. I don't believe in egoism. And it's really easy to be more concerned with the people that you see and interact with than everyone else. Right. So actually, let's zoom out a level from the individual and move into an agent having connections that it would like to have or that it happens to have in its life to other agents that it knows, right? So obviously you're someone I care about a lot and you're very close to me. So I'm going to hold you in high regard in all the decisions and think more about you uh, that I'm going to necessarily think about uh, everyone else in the world. And I think that's okay. I mean, part of the point of having agency to some degree is agents don't exist alone. They exist immersed in this wonderful and interesting world and they're going to develop social connections and they're going to develop uh things that they care about and goals that they're going to have and that's important and wonderful and useful and it also allows for interesting subcultures to emerge and just cultures in general and all that kind of stuff we we really appreciate but if we sit too long at this zoom level that's when we can end up with sexism and racism and all sorts of other things where we worry about the people who look the most like us who are in our family and we're like oh that person on the other side of the world you know well they're out of sight out of mind and that leads to greater subjection that leads to a lot of greater subjection right especially when you have the capacity to do things or shape the life of that person far away but they're just not within your view Mm -hmm. um so let's zoom out again and we're going to end up at the size of like you know a city a nation a society um you know the world right and at that level, we it's very hard to just talk about connections. It's hard to talk about who you care about. And by the way, that previous Zoom level, very inspired by ethics of care, wonderful feminist philosophy, recommend people look into. But it's hard to expand your bubbles of empathy everywhere. You hit empathy exhaustion. Mm-hmm. So um, we do need a way to be able to think about how is everyone holding up, basically. Uh, and in that point, we need some sort of index. Statistics are common to as like a, hey, how are we doing, right? You know, we check the statistics on poverty levels, check statistics on 
economic levels of all sorts of things. We check education uh, levels. Education levels. We check, uh, you know, uh, hunger levels. We check all sorts of things. And, you know, people are used to having statistics on things. Now, it can be misleading to think um, the sum total is what we care about, right? The sum or the average is the thing that we value. Now, I don't believe that the universe has baked into it a rule that says ethics are that number that comes added out of this sheet at the end of it. I also don't believe that the universe comes pre-baked with hard set rules. I'm not a deontologist. I think this is because of their consequences, but I do think that um, from both of those perspectives as being extremes, it is true when we talk about the aggregate, the sum, the average, etc., that there is value in that, but it's not because that number is itself what we value. It's because if we don't check those kind of numbers, we lose track of it. And then that person on the other side of the world does get subjected, right? And we fail our duties to that person. So we need that, right? And this is, you know, I think why you see deontologists, consequentialists, you know, uh, virtue ethicists all like being like, I'm starting out here, but shifting around where, you know, where they, what techniques they use as they're talking about different problems, right? So... So I think that um, it's not that the aggregate is itself the thing that we value. We value agency, and agency sometimes often is on the individual level and on the connections level. But since we care about everyone, this helps us see, are we on track, right? And at that point, this sounds like a very consequentialist philosophy. And at this layer, it actually really does resemble utilitarianism, which had a large influence on my thinking. I think we'll talk more about that later. But, uh, you know, utilitarianism does the sum of uh, happiness or suffering, which is very similar to the sum of uh, agency or subjection thing that we're doing right here. But one of the things that people start saying when there's consequentialist things are like, oh, well, that means that we can just justify any action, right? We can just justify lying here or murder there because the, the thing that comes out of it. But anybody who is a consequentialist who spends any significant amount of time analyzing these things doesn't come to those conclusions. They say, you're right. Society is going to be worse off if we don't have rules. If we don't have, um, if we don't protect people from being murdered, if we don't protect people from being lied to and stuff like that. Um, so we do want rules, but we want the rules because of the world that it makes. So that's still the consequence. It's still the kind of world that we're building. So, now we focus the lens. You know, we're still in the wide zoom out, but we focus it to try to analyze what the core rules and patterns are that we might recognize. Now, but when we hit this point, this might, this is where I think an interesting aspect of choosing agency as opposed to, say, happiness and suffering, um, choosing agency and subjection is that there comes in a dual pressure effect. Because we might become very tempted to look at the wider picture and say, aha, well, we know that all these people are going to be better off by doing this, that, and the other, and we're just going to tell them what to do. But to do that would be to remove their agency. So from the one perspective, you have a pressure that's saying, you know, increase the agency and minimize the subjection of everyone. And the other direction pushing it is saying, wait, 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 wait. But you can't do that in a way that kicks over the agency of individuals, because that was the whole point all along, right? So I think that's the interesting dual pressure effect that um, this ethics of agency basically creates and helps save it 
in that wide zoom outside and also help save it in the, the very strong zoom inside. Okay, so now that you have defined the ethics of agency, this seems like a very broad framework to work within. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some more specific examples other than hopefully everyone has agency and hopefully no one's subjected? Sure. Something we can see is, you know, a lot of the core principles that we have about, you know, a requirement that people have freedom of speech is, you know, makes sense. You know, people have the right to express themselves. Obviously, that's an important part of agency. Um, Also, people being uh, free from undue and unexpected violence. That's very important. If you're being attacked, it's very hard to be able to express agency when you're fearing for your life or actually being physically coerced in some way. So obviously Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Also makes sense to, um, on something very off the topic of free software and so on, this is, you know, related to why I'm a vegetarian personally, is that I do consider the agency and well-being of non-human animals and also about uh, the ability for our planet to keep running. Um, So that's an interesting application. And the ability for our planet to keep running gives everyone agency. It does give everyone agency. We will all lose agency if we hit the heat death of the universe. Or the heat death of this planet as large portions of it are just burning to the ground right now. Yeah. So. Literally. Yeah. So. This is recorded in October of 2020. 2020, So. So I do think that it's also important to give people a certain amount of freedom to be able to make decisions within their lives and that various people have various restrictions within their lives. But I think in general, that's guided a lot of my decisions about what things to do, right? And uh, and what kinds of projects to take on. The reason I work on the kind of projects I do is to increase the better agency of others, right? Um, not That's also because I have the privilege to do that, right? Not everybody does. So I'm going to refocus the lens here. Because mm-hmm. um, as I said, this is a very broadly applicable framework. But how did you, as um, someone with a background in ethics and philosophy and a free software advocate, come to develop this and how is it applicable in your world? Mm -hmm. So let's start with looking at the four freedoms as written by RMS. Um, so basically the main tenets of free software philosophy. Sure. Kind of handed down in a fairly prescriptive way by RMS. But I think that we can give credit to those being well-developed enough that I think they've carried the free software world for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Um, they're pretty clear principles. I don't know why we have four instead of three, but the right to basically run and the right to modify and the right to you know copy and distribute like those all make a lot of sense to me and uh, I think that having those as principles is really useful now the main the main issue I actually have is that for most people those kind of got handed down in a really prescriptive way wait wait you just listed three of the four that's the that's my simplified version Okay. I said, I don't know why it's not three instead of four. So let's keep this. That's my explanation. That's I, I don't know why it's uh, the four core ones are a little bit different from that. But I don't know why we couldn't just describe it as three other than that it's a pun on a different speech called the four freedoms. Yeah, okay. So um, I think it can be three freedoms effectively. 
So those are good principles. Like those are good requirements um, in that. And they've also helped us be able to be like, no, this thing shouldn't be in Debian, right? You know, this thing shouldn't be in Geeks. It shouldn't be, we're not, we're not touching that license, right? It doesn't uphold these values. And that, it doesn't help hold these principles. Makes sense. That's really good. But it gets handed down in a very prescriptive way. And uh, in RMS's, uh, I forget if it's a GNU Manifesto or one of the articles, he says, you know, the way that I came about with, with this is, this is basic ethics, i.e. Kantian ethics. And Kantian ethics, they're deontological. They say, universe has these core set of rules. We just have to figure out what they are. We have to think really hard to make things universal, and we can identify these core rules as maxims, and and we can figure that out. And, you know, RMS did all the work to figure out those maxims for us and handed them out. And they've been carved in stone ever since. They've been carved in stone ever since. And the thing is, is that for me, that's kind of bugged me because, A, I'm not a deontologist. I think that deontological approaches very often end up being very focused on whoever made them's biases and we can tell that because kant was hugely racist and hugely sexist and the utilitarians that were coming up with you know things over in consequentialist land were like amazingly in the opposite camp for their time sexual freedom you know women's rights animal rights animal rights no slavery like all that stuff so for me i was interested in seeing are these things reproducible with a framework that makes sense to me Right. And agency is something that really makes sense to me as being important. Let's talk about how you got from the core free software philosophy to the ethics of agency. So I know since I've kind of started interacting in the free software world, there's been somewhat of a shift in vocabulary over quite some time now. But from... And none of these words are obsolete or anything, but from free software to software freedom to user freedom, which all seems like very minor tweaks in vocabulary. And even ignoring the open source side of that whole discussion, but sticking to the freedom side of it, right? Yes. Um, Open source is a larger change in vocabulary. Right. And I think that the use of free software, software freedom, user freedom, none of those things are actually stomping on the others, but we've seen a a shift in emphasis on how often the words are used. And my understanding is I think that software freedom was a term introduced maybe by Bradley Kuhn uh, in terms of like another way to kind of use the phrase free software while avoiding some of the ambiguity issues that English has around free software which motivated some people for the use of the term open source there were some other motivations Mm -hmm. but you know um, and that makes sense saying software freedom makes it so you don't necessarily have to say free as in freedom versus free as in free beer right which is a huge mouthful and confuses people off the bat and so on so in 20 i think it was maybe 2014 or 13 um i'd have to check there's a free as in freedom episode where you can hear it i was on an agpl panel at uh fosdem and uh that's i think the first time that some of this language started to become clear to me i did a a search through a bunch of my old talks to figure out how this language ended up becoming developed um there was a conversation about um what's the what's a missing emphasis how do we end up in this bad situation about network services and so on and part of my argument in that talk was or in that panel was that we've had a lot of focus on developer freedom but not user freedom 
Um, and actually, I didn't say it that way. I said freedom for developers versus freedom for users. And actually, I don't even think I said that in that particular panel. What I said was that I was talking about uh, the GitHub lead author saying, give away everything but your secret sauce. And I said, well, the stuff that I work on, I give away that layer that everybody else is trying to protect as their secret sauce. I try to give things to users. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the next year when in my talks I started to use freedom versus develop for developers versus freedom for users. And I used it as that phrase. And then after that, it started to become clearer to me that I was talking about a lot of issues. I was talking about stuff I was calling network freedom issues. And I was talking about reproducibility things. And I was talking about um, just a whole bunch of concerns and free culture. And like it had all of these different um, aspects with all these different words and trying to search for something that unified it is when I started thinking about the term user freedom, I started kind of throwing it out there. I remember having a conversation with uh, Molly DeBlanc and I think maybe Deb Nicholson and I were walking after some conference and I was saying, yeah, I've been testing this phrase out. And then on my previous podcast that I co-hosted Libre Lounge, I was like, well, really want to sneak this phrase in there so i'm going to put it in the subtitle of the show so it was you know a casual conversation about user freedom um and i didn't know until we had uh karen sandler on the show that molly had been doing an excellent job actually of picking up that term and giving some talks about it karen said on the show well you know i think molly came up with it and i was like pm turn i was like oh like i had no idea that molly was doing this thing i'm really excited because i'm really excited about this term um and Karen was like, well, you should you should say something about it on the episode. And I was like, no, 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 no I don't want to grab the mic, yeah. which is like a big source of anxiety for me. And actually a big source of anxiety about this episode, as you kind of know, where I've been afraid to record it. So just to jump in here, we wrote out this outline about three weeks ago. Yeah. And Chris has been too nervous to actually record this episode for those three weeks because Chris is a little bit afraid of grabbing the mic. Well, yeah, we've had this very prescriptive style of uh, morality handed down. And Which again, was set in stone by one person. And I again, I think it's been very valuable. Like, it's yeah. been really, really... Um, it is foundational, and it continues to be foundational. It continues to be foundational. But, I mean, I think it's... I think it's important to say that there have been quite a few criticisms of RMS lately, and we don't want to get into them in this particular episode. You can find them on the internet. On the same hand, this is one of the reasons why we want to talk about a plurality of, uh, of ideas. This is one of the problems with having this kind of great man or great mind approach to philosophy, right? Because those great minds are still human. They're still human, <laughs> and we don't want a, a philosopher monopolist type situation. Mm-hmm. We want to be able to have the capacity for our community to be able to think through and introspect and make their own analysis about what's what's right and wrong. Um, so that's really what we're aiming for in this episode. Probably because of that, I haven't spoken up mm-hmm. when it's maybe been relevant or appropriate because I've been nervous about that. Um, mm-hmm. And maybe just because I'm nervous in general because I don't think of myself as a professional philosopher, even though I really care about philosophy. But a- And around the same time that we wrote this uh, outline up, kind of independent of us, uh, writing this stuff down, Karen Sandler and Molly DeBlanc also released a really wonderful 
set of principles. Yeah, it was the Declaration of Digital Autonomy. It's really great. We'll link to it in the show notes. I was actually really excited to see it. I think that it's an important initiative because I think what they're trying to do in there is kind of lay out a like ethical framing of where do we want to go? There are these other things that we care about that aren't just what copyright license it is. Um, what are these other issues that really matter and that tie in with this? And I think it's a, an exciting and important moment to have multiple people exploring these kinds of things. And I think that's really great. Um, and the two frameworks can work well together. They touch on different aspects that are applicable to the same fields. And I've just sent some feedback today about that document to Karen and Molly, but it's at version 0.1. So they're looking for feedback also, if you want to look at, at the show notes and, and, and read it and give commentary as well. Um, We're giving you your philosophy homework for the week. <laughs> right, that's right. Uh, but I think that what they're doing is identifying principles and you know directions. They're talking about autonomy. And so there's two interesting things there. I think one of them is them talking about principles and them talking about autonomy is related, but is, I think, kind of next steps of where you go from starting out at talking about agency. So we talked about needing a set of principles and some rules to be able to protect agency, right, when you move out on the societal level. And that's true, right? So... And a really simplified example, and I'm not saying that a single-celled organism is a particularly interesting agent. It's probably an agent, but it's not a very interesting one. Um, but I think that if we were thinking about a single-celled organism, if you zoomed all the way in, the main thing you'd see from the exterior is the membrane of that cell, right? And there's all these other interesting things also happening inside the cell. But that membrane does something really important. and keeps the cell together. Um, and it also protects it from the outside world. It helps uh, the cell maintain what it is, um, even though it's not the only interesting thing. And I see that membrane as being very related to autonomy, principles and rules that protect the cell. But we also shouldn't lose track of the fact that there's other interesting things going on in that cell. So the way that I see these things tying together is ethics of agency as being one really interesting foundational lens by which we can analyze and think about what kind of rules and principles we might develop and how we might treat each other, but it's very general. Mm -hmm. And the Declaration of Digital Autonomy is one thing that we can analyze and one thing that you know Molly and Karen have done quite a bit of thinking about to develop extrapolations. And I'm not saying they started off extrapolating from this, but I think it would be interesting to analyze that extrapolating mm -hmm. from where we are of what principles we might end up with. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I don't think any of these frameworks are throwing out the four freedoms either. These can all be kind of... Yeah, they can be compositional. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it hasn't always been called the ethics of agency, but you have been working towards this episode for at least the last, what, year and a half? Yeah, about two years. Yeah. Um, so continuing with the idea of user freedom and also with my interest in philosophy in general, uh, you know, kind of sitting at the back of my mind. And user freedom in some ways, I think we can think of, you know, as being a way of defending the agents using computers. But I had a really interesting dinner after um, the Object Capability Conference in 2017 
with my friends uh, Mark Miller and Kate Sills. Uh, and we were debating philosophy and political structures and so on, which we don't all completely agree on, but we agree on quite a bit. And one of the other things that came in was also the structure that we are interested in from the way that we advocate for programming. Because object capabilities are very much so about delegating authority as kind of handing out consent, about as much consent as you can model in a system for what you're allowing other entities to do. And uh, a lot of that work is really concerned with being able to protect and uphold um, the needs and safety and requirements of different components of a system. And that's not just to protect it as in terms of programs, but also in protecting those, it protects the users running that. And in thinking about that, kind of tied in with and kind of really built out some of my realization that, oh, you know, this style of programming and this ethical framework, you know, that we began discussing, we were talking about utilitarianism and also about, you know, various other frameworks. But I think that what was really interesting is that that conversation is basically where I walked out of there, first started thinking about the specific structure. And it was because of the the specific things we said at that dinner. And it, it started taking shape as opposed to shape. a bunch of kind of loose ideas that were based around freedom, but not necessarily aggregated into a framework. Exactly. You got it. Yeah. Yeah. So then last year at Activity Pub Conference 2019, in your keynote talk, you started talking about this publicly for the first time, right? Mm -hmm. So in that keynote, uh, which will be linked in the show notes, you outlined something at that point that you were workshopping calling agentarianism. Yes. So it showed up as like a slide in my keynote. A slide, but a couple minutes of conversation. It was a couple minutes. So the reason for it was I was talking about what we can and can't prevent in the systems we design. And there's a lot of things we can do to make things better. There are some kinds of harm that, from a technological perspective, we can't necessarily fully prevent. And there are also trade-offs that we have to choose. But one of the things I was saying was is that we could establish a lot of norms in our system by in instilling a sense of agency and ethics. And I propose this as a form of agency and ethics we can start thinking about. And part of my thinking there, and you know, we had the episode about Sprightly recently and virtual worlds and stuff. Um, something that made a big impact on me is when, this is a bit of a digression, but when Morgan and I were at Barra, the call, small liberal arts college we went to. With the bongos. With the bongos. Uh, um, at one point it was shutting down. Um, mm -hmm. and we were both very involved in a, a campaign to try to keep it open run by a person who had a big influence on me and in thinking about non active nonviolent social movements and so on run by Ken Bell again. Uh, and we didn't succeed though. I got a real sense of the value that you can do from working on a social movement. And we that, didn't succeed in saving the college, but yeah. for that year and a half, we had a really solid community. We had a really solid community. It was I've I've been in school forever, and I've been on college campuses for the last fifteen years because 
that's what getting your PhD does to you. And that year and a half was the only time that I've seen such a tight community between students, faculty, and staff all working together for the same goal. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that happened is that I got really depressed when we didn't succeed. Mm -hmm. Um, And I came very close to committing suicide, actually. Um, And one of the things, I felt a lot of despair then because I felt like there was nothing really to go for or to do in my life at that time. And as goofy as it is, I was also learning to program a very small amount at that time and started using Emacs. And I bumped into the GNU Manifesto. And even though I don't fully agree with the starting ethical framework that was used to derive those principles, I was really affected by the idea of ethics and and technology being really important and something to advocate. So I'd like to, if we succeed in getting Sprightly into a thing where people are playing virtual world systems and stuff like that, in your inventory when you you know start up, there's maybe a manual of how to use the game, and maybe there's a section in there that talks about what we care about, how we treat each other, right? Mm-hmm. And even if there are some things we technically can't prevent, instilling norms can really affect the kind of general behavior that we see in a system and can create a lot of good yeah i think just tangentially it's also worth noting that in that social movement to try and save our campus chris's primary contribution contribution was running the website that kept everyone up to date on the changes day by day in the process what the board had decided and what the community was doing to counter. I think that's part of the reason why I learned Emacs is I was learning, I didn't know HTML and stuff like that. I was learning it for that website. Mm -hmm. Um, So this idea of ethics and social movements and technology has been kind of developed in tandem for Chris for a long time. And I mean, you know, being developed in tandem, that doesn't mean that it's right just because it's been worked on for a long time, mm-hmm. but it does mean that it's been given some thought, right? Uh, and and it, it also means that's part of the reason why I've been scared of doing this, um, this talk is that uh, when something matters to me a lot, it gets scarier and harder to do it. I mean, you know that. You just saw... We're going to have to sit in the room for the presentation I put together about Sprightly for Activity Pub Conference. If you watch that video, there's a part where Chris pauses and says, did I say that word too many times? And then there's like a pause. And if you listen very, very closely, very quietly in the background, I'm like, it's fine. Keep recording. That's because Morgan was sitting in the room trying to prevent me from having a panic attack about it. The reason I was having a panic attack about it is because I care about Sprightly and all the things I was being talked about it so much in it so much that I didn't want to mess it up, and and that ironically can really hold me back, right? Yeah, we had to restart recording this episode like because three times? yeah, like three times because Chris was so nervous about getting it right, and that's and and even then we're still doing it as this rambly thing where we're sitting in front of the microphone instead of having like a very clear outline. Because you were like, Chris, if we don't just sit down and record this, you're never going to do it. Yes, it never would have happened. Um, Speaking of which, I'm going to jump back to the outline. 
Last on the outline was the AP Comp keynote and agentarianism. Right. And you'll note that it was agentarianism a year ago, and now we're calling it the ethics of agency. So why that change? So the reason it was called agentarianism was that it was a nod to utilitarianism, in that utilitarianism talks about ethics evaluating from the consequences and evaluating from a aggregate of how much happiness is created versus how much suffering. And that had a big influence on me in school. It is uh, notably, uh, I think, the polar opposite of the very framework that, you know, RMS used to create the four freedoms. But I think that really, as I said, you start out in one of these positions and you end up using the techniques from the others anyway. Mm-hmm. Um So I think... None of this philosophical absolutism? No, that's why I think having multiple lenses is really useful. And And also multiple voices creating those lenses. Yes, and and I think that's really important. And and maybe it wasn't clear enough earlier when I was saying, you know, that I, I was excited about Molly speaking. I really was excited about Molly speaking. Like, I'm excited about... Molly has a very different perspective than I do on the user freedom stuff. And I think that's really important and valuable. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important for us at this time to be able to get a variety of voices in. But in part, in- Especially because we're sitting here as two fairly privileged white people talking about a thing. And we would like to have it's more voices than just ours. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You can't, you know, yeah, it would be a mistake to say we've understood all the perspectives for everyone. Yep. Done. Yeah. Everyone just follow us. No need to continue. But, but we still haven't answered the question, why why switch the name then? If yes. it was inspired by utilitarianism, why switch it um, away from that name? But part of it, it was really two pieces. One of them is, is I, I never really loved the ism because uh, that kind of ism-ness stuff sometimes makes me uncomfortable, partly for what we just said. You know, it's useful to have multiple lenses. Um, Isms I, have a tendency to become absolutist. Yeah. And also because i had an interesting exchange actually with that philosophy advisor i had dr michael edwards who is hopefully okay with me using his name on this talk where i I kind of threw the ideas that i was thinking about at him and he gave me some feedback part of it was uh you know it's interesting and useful that you're starting from agency also some uh do you remember amartya sen's development as freedom which is an interesting book talking about instead of measuring the development of countries by like their gross domestic product and stuff like that, we measure it by how much freedom their citizens have and how much agency they have. Uh, and then that's what we should be really measuring. And also kind of challenged me that focusing on utilitarian perspectives sometimes put too much focus on the aggregate as if the aggregate was itself the ethical thing. And I, I agree with that criticism, even though I think utilitarianism has historically really anticipated a lot of things way before other things hit the mainstream because it does end up looking at the aggregate but it's not that the aggregate is what's valuable right like it's easy to lose track of the fact that there are individual human stories and that we owe things to each other and that we need that to keep ourselves in check basically um so with that in mind is partly why I was thinking, well, I think it it might make sense to take the multi-zoom level uh, lens approach. And with kind of a nod to the ethics of care stuff, I thought, well, ethics of agency is a pretty good sounding name. 
that doesn't tie itself too closely to any one of these things. Yeah. Um, yeah, so that's why. Now that we've kind of outlined the framework and how you got here and how your free software advocacy played into that, can we talk more about some of the applications of this ethics of agency on the free software world? So I think that one of the things that is interesting is to ask, why did we end up in the situation where we need something like the four freedoms in the first place? What what caused that? If you really unwind it, what you see is the introduction of copyright and patents and what I call intellectual restrictions laws. Because um, I agree that they are an aggregate of things that do something similar but aren't the same. They do things differently. But they are doing something in common, which is to restrict some intellectual endeavor. And copyright and patent advocates make arguments that, well, it's going to benefit everyone to have these intellectual restriction systems in place. Now, I think if we look at the ways in which our lives are completely tied in with computers, things that we might have called nerd rights at one point really become human rights. And the amount of division between the thinking space in my brain and the thinking space between whatever computing device I'm using, whether it's on my laptop or, you know, my mobile phone or whatever. We've basically talked about Chris being a cyborg with Emacs. Yeah. <laughs> before. Well, Karen Sandler's yeah. talk about her being a literal cyborg with her implant is another great example. Right? Oh, yeah. Uh, Obviously. For, you know, the, the distinction between us and our computing systems shrinks. All these nerd technical rights things just become de facto human rights issues. If you have a system that's standing in the middle of you being able to express or think about a topic on your computer, it's basically standing in the way between that and your actual mind, right? And is it justifiable for some level of argument to say, we really need to use state violence to enforce these intellectual restrictions laws. If you want to talk about artist compensation and our need to compensate artists, that's one thing. I'd argue that the, comp the copyright system we have right now isn't doing a very good job anyway of that. I agree with the need to support artists, but should we allow that kind of level of restriction of intellectual fashion? I think if you think from a perspective of agency, answer is clearly no. We can't allow those laws, especially in computing systems, to restrict our ability to explore ideas and to express ideas. So I think you can actually end up starting from that perspective saying, oh, right, yeah, so you actually really do need the rights to distribute, to uh, run, to modify software and also cultural works and all sorts yeah. of other things uh, but we're looking at that from now from a sense of the user requires that agency in order to function right. within our modern world it's not just a developer requires that to develop the to software. develop the software it's That's everyone right. it's 
Well, I mean, everyone is affected by these kinds of things. Yeah. So I think, so, so that's basically where I come to. And I think that that does allow us back to some of those same places. But I think actually, if you start looking at it from that perspective, it also answers some other things. We talk about copyleft, such as with the GPL and CC BIAS A and et cetera. Uh, not everybody agrees with copyleft. Some people believe that it's so objectionable to use a system of state violence against intellectual systems at all, even to try to protect the commons, that we should just shouldn't allow it at all. But I actually think the copyleft is justifiable from my perspective in the sense that it's a license system that's designed to turn the teeth of the system back at itself to protect the commons. Mm-hmm. Now, what other things should we allow in free software licenses, in free and open source software licenses? There's a bunch of other things that we might say we might want to include, but many of those things that we might say, well, we'd like to include this, might actually get us very addicted to the intellectual restriction system in the first place. To say, well, we also need to do X, Y, and Z. Um, so we're going to, actually now we're really dependent on this system of intellectual res- restrictions imposed by state-enforced violence, right? So I'm going to halt you because you're getting a little bit rambly. Can you give me maybe three short examples of ethics of agency? Sure. So how about let's talk about some non-copyright perspectives and when i say short i mean normal people's definition of short not chris's definition of short okay how about privacy okay if you don't have a space to think and be able to explore ideas then you aren't going to be able to express your agency so privacy is a must absolutely that's a good right okay i'd say the right to be able to modify your hardware so you know, and right, the ability to, and the not ability, just the right, the ability and right. Um, so the right the to re- agency to modify yeah, your heart the right. agency. So so there's two sides to that. One of them is the right to repair movement, mm-hmm. having a legal right to not be interfered with, mm-hmm. to be able to do that. That's important. That's an important structural foundation. And then the other side of that that I think you kind of hinted at with what you said is the ability to do that, which also might mean beyond just what legal structure we do and don't impose, what we might choose to make as in terms of materials that we make available for the world to increase mm-hmm. agency. So yeah. not just worrying about a subjection, but worrying about being excited about the things we can do to increase each other's agency. Yeah, and by materials there, that could be educational materials so that people know right. how to do it. Also, physical materials when something inside your computer breaks the ability to find another one of those things and replace it. So I guess the last one might be who can participate in our communities. Yes. Right? So if it's only people who look and act like me, historically, I might be as a very individual feel like my agency is really being upheld. But if I believe that it's really important for my agency to be able to have access to these things, then I should really worried about who feels empowered and comfortable and capable of participating. And this might not necessarily just be like, well, we need to make rules and regulations and so on, but let's take initiatives Mm -hmm. to make people feel more comfortable and safe and so on. You also have to use those two things together. You can't have initiatives towards diversity and outreach 
but still have actors in your community who are going to make the new recruits feel uncomfortable and unsafe. Right, yeah, exactly. So you you have to actually uphold and enforce that and say, hey, look, this is our community. We're deciding what kind of behavior we want to welcome here. That's not the kind of behavior we welcome. Mm -hmm. Sorry. Excellent. So now that I got you to pinpoint three laser-focused examples inside technology, uh, can you give us some of the more broad applications of this framework? Sure. There are some really easy ones, right? Like slavery bad. Yeah, we 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 should all know that. Uh, don't parent- kick puppies. Don't kick puppies. Well, so that's part of the reason why I'm vegetarian, right? Mm-hmm. Well, I worry about our cat a lot. I also worry about the well-being of sentient but non-sapient animals that, well, they don't have the capacity for intellectual thought, so we wouldn't give them a right to vote. They can suffer, and we are choosing how to construct our society. We do plenty of things where we make choices about what kinds of things we're going to do in our society. And I think that a valuable choice for me is to become a vegetarian to reduce that amount of suffering. And also another reason is because, you know, the carbon effect of being vegetarian is something like, I think it's like between 12 and 14 times lower Mm -hmm. than having a omnivorous diet. So well, and part of the part of the agency application here too is that you can have levels of that. You don't have to just be vegetarian or in order to decrease your carbon footprint. You can only eat meat once a month. You can have a flexitarian diet. You can reduce you can redu- things. You can eat cage free. Some sometimes we have to meet people where they're at, mm-hmm. and I think that it also applies in free software as well, uh, where. You know, we can be really hard on people for, you know, you've got a non-free driver on your computer. How dare you? Mm -hmm. And I think it's really important and valuable for some people to actually really push the hard version of that, right? So since I care about the planet being alive as in terms of uh, being inhabitable, because that allows more agents and that being part of the vegetarianism, I do agree that it's very often better to take a vegan approach. But I'm not vegan. It's too hard at the moment for me to be able to meet quite there. But I think it's valuable that some people are. Mm -hmm. Um, They make it easier, even for me, to be able to make those decisions. And I think also with me being vegetarian, it it helps even non-vegetarians sometimes. You know, it creates network effects. Mm -hmm. So it can be exhausting to try to take on every single thing at once. That's very hard in our society. But people can focus on some things to choose to take on. And we can collectively make it easier for us all to uphold the agency of each other and avoid subjecting each other, basically. To the best of our abilities. To the best of our abilities, yeah. Which needs to be better, in general, as humankind. Especially in 2020. Yes. So, on that note, we're going to wrap this up with just saying this is still a work in progress. Yep. I mean, you can tell by how rambly this episode was, how much of a work in progress it is. Yeah. So I think we mentioned at the top of the episode, Chris wrote up a blog post about this and then sent it out to some people for feedback. And now that blog post is still a work in progress because there's so much feedback to incorporate. But feedback is 
from those few people. But feedback is great. Like we said, more voices are better in this sphere so that it's not just looking at this from the perspective of a handful of people and then saying, hey, apply this to everyone. We don't want a philosophical monopolist position, including for me. I should not be a philosopher monopolist in our domain or any domain. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I'm yeah, I'm very interested in feedback before we put this up. Mm-hmm. So if you have any ideas or contributions or examples for the ethics of agency that you would like to share with Chris before they publish their blog post, um, you can contact us in all of the usual ways that will roll on our outro. Which I guess is going right now, huh? Yeah. All right. So that's it for the week. Thank you, everybody. Wait, 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 wait. What? Oh, wait, sorry. Um, so we said a couple episodes ago when we did the Sprightly episode that we'd make an announcement when the Sprightly website went live. And the Sprightly website went live. It's sprightlyproject.org. Yeah, it's really cute, you guys. So uh, check it out. And uh, now we'll let you get to that outro music. All right. Bye, everybody. Bye. Foss and Crafts is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 International License. It's hosted by Morgan Lemmerweber and Christopher Lemmerweber. The intro music is composed by Christopher Lemmerweber, meaning myself, and Milky Tracker, and is released under the same license as the show. The outro music is Enchanted Tiki 86, composed by Alex Smith of The Cynic Project, and is waved into the public domain under CC0 1.0. See cynicmusic.com for more information. You can get in contact with us on the Fediverse, Foss and Crafts at octodon.social, on Twitter as at Foss and Crafts, or you can email us, podcast at fossandcrafts.org. We also have a chat room. Join our community, hash Foss and Crafts, on irc.freenode.net. If you'd like to support the show, you can donate at patreon.com forward slash c-w-e-b-b-e-r. That's it for this week. Until next time, stay free. And stay crafty. Okay, we're going to try this again. Maybe I'll be a little bit less nervous. Take two. Should we redo the intro, or do you think that's fine? Let's redo the intro. Just, yeah, let's bring some stuff. A very gross blooper. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now we have the cat staring at us. Well, good. Next time I do this bit, she'll be there. Yeah. Intro. Hello. Welcome to Foss and Crafts. A podcast about free software, free culture, and learning things together. Learning things together? That's a mix. Oh. I mean, that's pretty good. I mean, it's true. Learning things together, but it was supposed to be making things together. It was. <laughs> Should we redo this? I don't know. Maybe this is a good... It's I mean, a good outtake. It's a good outtake. Uh, you know, yeah, I mean, it's true, but... Okay. We are doing a philosophy episode, so maybe learning things together works. Maybe.